This is about three men. They were Jews. So they believed in God. Um, and they worked at a big factory. Big factory. And one day they went to work. It was early in the morning. They went to work. And they went through their day. And it was towards the end of the day. And one of their last duties was to go into a huge freezer. Do you have a freezer at home? But it's probably small, isn't it? Yeah. But this was a big room freezer. So you would open the big door and you could walk in. And as they were in there, they were doing what they needed to do in there. And all of a sudden, what do you think happened? The door shut. And they went over to the door and they tried to open it. And it wouldn't open. No. They thought, it's okay. It's cold in here, but... It's almost close to closing time, and surely someone's going to come in to the freezer and check to just make sure everything's okay. No big deal. So they waited, and as it got closer to closing time, they started to bang on the door. But nobody came to the door. <coughs> Finally, closing time came, and no one opened that freezer door. Well, on the outside, <clears throat> the one who was supposed to lock everything up, he went around and he checked everything and he didn't see anyone. So he went out the door and he locked the front door and he went out towards the parking lot. And in their parking lot, they had um, uh, like a guard who would just keep track of the cars and things. And as he passed him, his name, we'll call him Joe. And he said, well, Joe, I thought you were going on vacation today. And Joe said, yes, well, the person who was supposed to take my place was sick today, so I had to come in. I'm going to go tomorrow. He said, okay, we'll have a good vacation. And Joe looked at him and he said, wait a minute. Are you sure everyone is out of the factory? And the man, he said, well, yes, I checked. No one's in the factory. And Joe said, no, I think someone's still in the factory. You should go back and check. Well, the man was like, he wanted to go home. He's like, Okay, I'll go back inside. And he went back inside, and he looked all around. Did he find anything? He didn't find anyone. And he went back outside, and he said, Joe, there's nobody left in the factory. Joe said, I think you're wrong. Someone's in the factory. You should go back and look. So he went back, and he looked around. Did he find anyone? He didn't find anyone. <clears throat> well, meanwhile, the three men in the freezer began to realize that no one was left in the factory. So they prayed. They read their, their little um, Bibles. And they began to prepare themselves for death because they can't survive in the freezer. <clears throat> well, meanwhile... The man went outside, and he said, Joe, there's no one in the factory. I've looked everywhere. And Joe looked at him, and he said, someone's in the factory. You cannot leave. You have to go back in there. And it, the man was taken back because Joe was a very quiet sort of guy. This was very unlike him. And so he's like, okay, I, <laughs> I don't know where else to look. He says, Joe said, I'm going to go and look with you. So they both went into the factory. They looked in closets. They looked under the counter. They looked behind doors. They looked everywhere. 
Did they find anyone? And Joe couldn't understand. And as they turned to leave, they were walking towards the door and they passed the freezer. And Joe looked at the freezer and he said, they're in the freezer. And they opened the freezer door and they found those three men. By this time, they were unconscious. They called the emergency. The emergency came, took them away. And those three men's lives were saved. Well, when things kind of quieted down, the, the one man, he turned to Joe and he said, Joe, how did you know that those men were in the freezer? Joe said, well, I've been working here for many years. And every morning, those three men stop and say, good morning. How was your evening? How are you doing? Have a good day. And every evening, when they're coming out of the factory, they stop and they ask me about my day and they say, have a good evening. But today, they didn't come out. And I knew that something had to be wrong. So what can we learn from this story? There is power in a friendly smile and a friendly greeting. We never know the impact that we are going to have on someone. And it could, just by you smiling, you could actually save a life. Even in those simple things. So never underestimate the power of your influence on someone else. Why don't we pray and ask Jesus to help us? Our Heavenly Father, I pray for this sweet child. You know the life that she has before her and the influence that she will have. And I just pray that this coming week that she will remember to smile, to greet those around her with your love, that she can brighten their day and be your witness. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We go from one thing to the next. <laughs> Our special music this morning is a familiar hymn, Day by Day. It's number 532. You're welcome to follow along. One thing I love about this hymn is not just the tune, it's a beautiful tune, but also the words. It talks about how as we go through day by day, we can find strength no matter what we face in Jesus. He wants to walk by our side. He will get us through. Uh, verse 1 says, Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Jesus doesn't just leave us to sorrow and hardship, but he gives us those, that joy, that peace, and that rest along the journey. And may we continually find that day by day.
Thank you, Kimberly and Christina. I love that song. After a story like that, I don't, I don't know that we need a sermon. <laughs> yeah. You know you weren't just telling the story for Johanna. <laughs> Although I'm sure Johanna enjoyed it. My portion. What is our lot in life? To what or whom do we owe the good or ill that we receive from the hand of God? And in what is our response? In Bible times, the idea of having one's portion or one's inheritance was an important concept for every family, for every individual. The Hebrew word chalak, I probably say that wrong, comes from the word chalak, which means to divide or to, to separate. The chalak refers to one's portion or share. In particular, it might refer to a tract of land that was the family inheritance. Or more generally, it might be a share of anything, whether it was goods or pay or anything else. But in any, at any rate, one's portion, one's chalak, has a lot to do with one's lot in life. After Jacob's uncle Laban had cheated him time and time and time again, it was time for him to return to the land of Canaan with his wives and his possessions that he had gotten in Laban's house. At that time, Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives, asked him, Is there yet any portion, any chalak, any inheritance in our father's house? Our father has cheated us so many times, let's just be gone. We've been studying in Sabbath school the book of Job. And in Job 31, verse 1, Job asks, What portion of God is there from above? And what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? But if anyone had reason to wonder about their portion, their inheritance, their lot in life, it would have to be David. As he fled from the hand of King Saul, he had no place of rest in all the land of Israel. And so, in desperation, he fled to the land of the Philistines. And in that land, he was given a small village, the town of Ziklag, where he settled his wives and his families and the families of his men. From there, he went out to fight the common enemies of Israel and the Philistines. But on his return from battle, not too many months later, what a heart-sinking discovery he made. As David and his men crested the last hill, rounded the last bend on their journey back home to Ziklag to see their wives and their little ones, what a grim sight met their eyes. For there where the town of Ziklag had been lay only smoldering ruins. Their wives, their children were nowhere to be found, gone, clearly, undoubtedly taken captive by the Amalekites. We read this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and turn there with me in your Bibles, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we'll be spending most of our time here in this story. We'll go from verse to verse a little bit. But 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. 
They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. But you know, in those days, to be carried away as a captive was often a fate worse than death. And David knew that, and his men knew that. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with, with them lifted up their voices and wept till they had no more power to weep. You know, friends, I look around this room and I think, and I see, I know each one of you. There is not one here who has not suffered some kind of a loss. When we suffer a loss, I'm not talking about losing a penny on the sidewalk, okay? I mean, we, we don't have grief over that. But when we suffer real loss, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a family member, sometimes perhaps the loss of a job, the lesser things, loss of material things, but especially the loss of another person, we go through this process that we call grief. And there's, there are, the experts tell us that there are several, many different stages that a person goes through in this process of grief. Now, they may not all happen in the same order for every person. They may not be clearly defined, okay, stage one, stage two. It's not necessarily in clearly, but there's several different stages that a person goes through. Our family is experiencing this. And, you know, as I read this story of David here in the village of Ziklag, I see David and his men going through the same stages. I see the people of the Bible going through all of these stages of grief. Probably the first stage in this process is what we call denial. No, it didn't really happen. The diagnosis is wrong. It wasn't him. He didn't die. He's not, he doesn't have cancer. It's something else. But in this story, of course, the story of David and his men, there's very little room for denial. When they came over that hill, they saw the village smoking. They saw nothing but ruins. It was clear that their wives and their children were gone. They probably didn't know, though. Have they been slain? Have they been taken? Where are they now? They didn't know. And so, chances are they were in denial. But denial is, depending on the, the circumstances, perhaps a long response or perhaps a short response. Because there comes a point in every tragedy when denial is no longer an option. When the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that the tragedy has, yes, indeed, taken place. Later in, in David's life, when his own son, Absalom, led a, re led a revolt against his father, King David, his father remained in denial. Even though he had to flee the capital, even though he had to send the nation's armies in pursuit of his son to retake the kingdom, when he finally hears the news... King David, your honor, your armies have been victorious and your son has been slain. The revolt is over. Instead of congratulating his armies, he goes to his room, hides his face and cries uncontrollably, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Yes, denial is a, a very common and in some, some ways, for a time at least, appropriate response to grief. 
But the Bible gives us an answer to this response. Are we, I want to ask ourselves, are we being honest with ourselves? Can we be honest with ourselves? Do I admit to reality? Am I willing to accept my portion? My portion, whatever that lot may be, am I willing to accept it? Probably the second natural response in the process of grief is a response of anger. Now, I say natural response because anger is a natural response to any time we feel an injustice, any time we feel that there's wrong, there's something that's, that's out of place. Anger gives us the courage, it galvanizes our determination to right the wrong, to set the record straight, to set the wrong right. But a lot of times when we experience loss, that anger gets directed at those that are closest to us. Because we feel this injustice and we don't know how to release that anger. We don't know how to release that. And so it gets directed at those closest to us or perhaps to those in authority or perhaps to God himself. God, why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you, etc., etc.? Now in this story of David and Ziklag, we find this very clearly played out. And now David was greatly distressed in verse 6, 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Notice here, David's men are ready. They are so angry. Now, who should they be angry at? They should be angry at the Amalekites, right? But no, they're angry at their leader because he is the one closest to them at that, at that moment. And they're ready to stone David. For what? I don't know. What could David have done? But they're ready to stone their leader. But you know what David does? Instead of falling into a hole of depression, he has nowhere to go. His men are turned against him. His wives are gone. His children are gone. But there's one place that he can go, and it's the same place that you and I can go. He goes directly to the Lord. He goes to the priest of the Lord. He says, bring the ephod here. In verse 7. And they brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord in verse 8. Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered, Pursue and you will surely overtake them. And without fail, recover all. So we feel anger as a natural response, as a, as a stage in our grieving process. But what is the Bible's answer to this anger? Are we being honest with God? Is our portion a bitter one? Let us not blame God. Let us not take out our anger at those around us. But at the same time, the Psalms, I think of, for example, the 22nd Psalm. There's a time to wrestle with God. In that 22nd Psalm, I see reflected not only the anguish of David, but the suffering and anguish of Jesus Christ, who suffered and bled and died for you and for me. And yet the words of that song, that psalm can be a hauntingly appropriate prayer and response 
to someone who is feeling forsaken and, and bereaved. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We move from that response of anger to perhaps what we call bargaining. Thinking, what could I have done to prevent this? What could I do differently to, to stay the inevitable fate, the inevitable tragedy that is coming upon me or my family? Now, naturally, again, this is a natural response because in my day-to-day course of actions, if I come up against a brick wall, if, I, if I'm going in one way and I say, okay, this is not working, Okay, what's the natural thing to do? Turn, go a different way. Okay, let's, let's try this. Let's try something else. Now, naturally, I don't like to change. If I asked you, how many of you just like to change? No, no, we don't like to change. But we will change. If, I can, if I'm going this way and I see that this is not working, we will change. This is the logical response, right? People are very resilient. Even though we don't want to change, we will change to avoid a fate, a terrible fate like that. In David's bereavement in Ziklag, God directed David and his men to a very swift course of action. Go, overtake them, you will recover all. But in, in many cases, in many cases, uh, in the grieving process, there's this, there's this feeling like, if I just change something, if only I did... So, and then it gets to a later point of remorse and regrets. Oh, if only, if only, if only... It's a, it's a very unhealthy response because how many of us can go back into the past and change what has happened in the past? We second-guess ourselves and then we feel guilt within that has nothing to do with ourselves, but it becomes it comes from internalizing this, this um, thought that perhaps somehow we are responsible for this tragedy that has taken place. What could we do to do differently? What could we... This is all what we call bargaining. Maybe I better eat better. I'm going to eat nothing but carrots for the rest of my life. And maybe I'll add a few more. But you know, friends, the Bible says God is there to help us in every time of need. Can my portion be made sweeter? God may not be able at this point, I'd not say that he's not able, but he's not ready at this point right now to reverse the circumstances, perhaps. But he may not be able to remove that bitter cup of suffering right now at this moment. But he can give strength to drain it to its dregs. In the comfort of knowing the one who in infinite love has trodden that path of suffering before We were talking in Sabbath school about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Christ has for you and me not just sympathy, but because he has come to this world, because he has gone through the experience that you and I go through in a human life, he can empathize with our hearts. He can say truly, not facetiously, but truly, I know your pain. I know what you're going through. I feel it too. I felt it on the cross. In 1st 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4:16 through 18. Therefore we do not lose heart even though our inward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being I'm sorry. Even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed 
day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Often from this stage stage of bargaining, of trying to feel what we could, could do or could have done differently, it moves into a, a phase of depression. Perhaps we see that as a phys- physiological uh, response, crying, sleep disorders, appetite disorders, etc. It's a natural response. In David's case, as soon as the men hear it, had come over that hill and they came into Ziklag and they saw what had happened. They burst into uncontrollable weeping and sorrow. You know, all through scripture, from the time of Adam until the earth made new, all the human family has to face a common enemy, death. And although philosophers and poets and preachers throughout history have tried to reckon with this foe, yet we cannot fully come to terms with this tragedy. At the climax of a person's learning, at the height of their experience, with the accumulated wisdom of a lifetime, all is lost to the land of the living. And even though the essence of a person may be preserved in their writings, books, their inventions, or the tangible things that they leave behind, these are merely a shadow of the person who has created them, of the life that has brought these into existence. And even though their legacy may be preserved in the lives of those they have touched, yet death places a period on every relationship, a loss in every family, a hole in every heart. But you know, friends, as I open my Bible, the most beautiful Psalms in all of Scripture were written through the tears of depression. Just a couple chapters over, the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David hears of the death of Saul, who, although he was his worst enemy, was also in many ways a, a close friend and the anointed of the Lord. Not only Saul, but David's friend who was closer than a brother, his own friend, Jonathan together had died in battle. And David raises up, lifts up his voice and weeps for both Saul, his worst enemy, and Jonathan in one of the most beautiful and touching laments in all of Scripture in 2 Samuel. David also writes in Psalms chapter 63, I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you, speaking to God. I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. Friends, though our days may be dark, though we may be in the valley of the shadow of death, yet we need not fear evil, for he is with us. We can receive comfort. We can receive God's help in the deepest valley of depression. 
And finally, the final stage is what we call acceptance. That is not to say that we forget the loss. No, you and I will never forget the loss. But in time comes healing. Life goes on. The saying goes, the time is a great healer. New experiences spring to life. New relationships blossom. New memories cover the scars of time. In the world, we call it moving on. But you know, friends, the Bible gives us so much more than moving on. Yeah, you can move on. But the Bible offers us something more. It offers us hope. Yes, really. You've heard the expression, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, if I read my Bible right, in this sense, you can have your cake and eat it too. How so? Precisely in the hope and the assurance of the resurrection. You see, for us, death puts a period on the sentence of life. But God's word adds a little tail onto that period and turns it into a comma. God's word turns a full stop into just a little pause. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And one of my favorite verses, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. Friends, the Bible gives us hope and assurance of a life to come. But let's go back to the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, we didn't finish the story. So David takes 600 men. He has inquired of the Lord. He takes these 600 men and he goes out. He sets out on a march. No, I, I, I think a march is the wrong word. He sets out on a dead run, going after the Amal- Amalekites. Okay? And that's all these emotions inside, right? Anger, it, you name it. I mean, they're, but they're going in the strength of the Lord. It's not in their own strength. They're going in the strength of the Lord and pursuing and chasing after and chasing after and chasing after. But guess what? After a little while, some of them get tired. And they end up leaving 200 people, 200 men of their 600-man army. They leave 200 men behind to sit with some of the luggage in the desert while the 400 pursue on and overtake the Amalekites. They have a battle. We don't know exactly how the battle goes, but they're victorious. It sounds like they just routed them just right there. They're victorious. And here, not too long, they come back with their train, their procession, wives, Children, sons, daughters, and all the stuff, all the spoils of battle. What a triumphant return. That triumphant return soon turns into a bit of an argument. Because the 400 men who are coming back with all the stuff, the spokesman, I don't know what his name was, he comes up and says, look, great, we've got everything back. You guys, you ought to be thankful that we kept on going, right? 
You get your, you, we'll, we'll be nice. We'll give you your wives and your children back and we'll keep our wives and children on all the stuff. Sounds fair enough, right? But guess what David says? Of course, these men are saying, that you got, the, the, the 400 men are saying, you lazy, good for nothing. You're sitting here. Here we had to go out without you. But David says, my brethren, in Psalm, in First Samuel 30, verses 23 and 24, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. For he has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall all share alike. So David, their commander, says, uh-uh. There's none of this, my, my stuff and your stuff. Everybody gets the same portion. I like that word, his part. I looked that up in the Strong's Concordance. Other translations say his portion. It's that same word, chalak. Whoever, your inheritance. The inheritance of the ones, it's not the inheritance in this case, but the portion of the, of the spoils, the, the portion of the ones who went into battle, the same as the portion of the ones who stayed behind. Friends, I take so much courage in this simple but wonderful ending to this story. Not only are all the women and families and children restored to David and his men, but so much more. But it didn't matter whether the men had gone into battle or had stayed back with the supplies. Each one had committed his heart to the project, and each one received his reward. David recognized that it wasn't because of any of their efforts that they had been victorious. It was only because of the Lord. And in recognizing this, he demonstrated the spirit of the Lord in sharing equally with all who had a part, regardless of the part they had played. Friends, you and I, along with all who have passed to their rest in the hope of Jesus' soon return, will, like these soldiers in David's small army, receive a portion. When we enter that heavenly land, it will not be because of anything that we have done, but only because of what Christ has done for us. At his coming, we know that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. I'm sorry. We who are alive and remain will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Friends, this is precisely the difference between the heresy of salvation by works versus the truth of salvation by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who, like my father, are laid to rest will receive their portion, no more and no less than those of us who remain here to battle in this dark world. 
Do you remember the parable that Jesus spoke of the householder? He had a vineyard, and he went into the marketplace to hire workers. At the beginning of the day, he hired some workers. Then, towards the middle of the day, he hired more. And finally, at the 11th hour, he went and hired still more. At the end of the day, when they came to receive their wages, they expected to receive proportional to the work they had done. But no, everyone received the same portion. Friends, this is the key principle in these stories. When it comes to our eternal reward, God does not reward those who work the hardest or the longest. He doesn't reward those who stayed on the front lines differently than those who stayed back, so to speak, with the stuff. Everyone who has cast his lot on the side of the Lord, who surrenders his life to God, will not fail to receive his reward. It is not only those who have passed on, or those who remain to the eleventh hour to cast in their lot that I'm thinking of right now. I think, too, of so many of us here, and of those that I know who can't be here, who, for one reason or another, perhaps because of illness, infirmity, or because of their circumstances, they feel like they can do so little for the Lord. They feel as though while others are, are marching to the front lines, they're doing nothing but sitting back with the stuff. I felt like that from time to time. Perhaps you have too. But I think the heart of our Savior is reflected in those simple words of David. But as his part is who goes down to battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall all share alike. Friends, it may not be on a mountain height or over the stormy sea. It may not be on the battle's front. My Lord will have need of me. But if by a still, small voice he calls to paths I do not know, I'll answer, Dear Lord, with my hand in thine, I'll go where you want me to go. For his children, God has given so many countless promises. One of my favorites is in Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 through 12. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in the wasteland, in a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. And one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In verse 24, I love this. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Friends, are you grieving today? Friends, do you feel like perhaps I can't do all that I would want to do for our loving Savior? Friends, rest in his love. Rest in his faithfulness. For great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Let us turn to our closing hymn and sing together. Great is thy faithfulness. Hymn number 100. Let us stand as we sing together. Great is thy faithfulness.
O Lord, Father in heaven, Lord, you are our loving Father. Great is your faithfulness. You, O Lord, are our portion forever. Therefore, Lord, we have hope. Let this be our hope and our prayer and our one desire, Lord, to sing of your great faithfulness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.